hello and welcome once again back to the Coffee and Heroes Movie A Day podcast. So the reaction seemed to be pretty good to what I put out for week one there. It was very much a six degrees of separation week. What I wanted to do this time was I was going to start off and watch all of the James Bond movies all in a row. I'm a big Bond fan. You know, I've always grown up in a world where Bond movies existed. I used to watch them on old battered VHSs. They existed before DVDs, kids. Having recorded them, long play of course, anytime there was one being shown on a bank holiday on ITV. You know, I grew up uh, with Roger Moore as my favourite Bond and, and that's who will always be James Bond for me. I think it's all about your first exposure to the character and The Man with the Golden Gun remains my personal favourite movie. I'm even honoured to say I met Roger Moore, or Sir Roger Moore as I should say, when I first moved to Cambridge. Definite geek out moment for me and an absolute gentleman. I can always appreciate what other actors brought to the role and respect people who stick with Connery as their favourite. These tend to be the purists as you know Connery was the original. Or those that think Dalton led the way for Daniel Craig's current rugged take on the character. I can even get on board with Pierce Brosnan as I think he was a great Bond who was saddled with bad movies. Golden Ass Side of course which is a stone cold classic. And then that leaves George Lazenby who was unfortunately only Bond once. This is a real shame, I think, as it would have been really interesting to see how a follow-up to the one Bond movie where he ends up married. So again, I thought it would be fun just to go back right to the beginning and trace the 007 movies uh, right up to modern day. So settle back, grab a martini, shake a nut stirred, of course, unless it's 10 in the morning when you're listening to this, and get ready to travel the world with 007. So we're going to kick things off with January the 8th with Dr. No. I admire your courage, Miss Trench. Sylvia Trench. I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond. The one that began it all. Who would have thought that a modestly budgeted spy thriller based on a series of books, with a Scottish actor in the main role who used to be a milkman, would set a template for what would become the world's most famous secret agent? Dr. No could reasonably make a case for being the definitive Bond movie. It's certainly the closest to Ian Fleming's version of the character. The Bond played with elegance and charisma by Sean Connery is lethal, brutal, uncompromising, a gambler, a smoker, a drinker, and a man who doesn't let anyone get close to him. There are only a couple of locations in the movie with the bulk of the action taking place in Jamaica. It's a straightforward plot. The British Secret Service have lost contact with their man in Jamaica just as he was making headway with an investigation into the mysterious Dr. No. So after one of the most iconic cinematic entrances of all time, they send 007 to investigate. It's actually really easy to forget just how brutal James Bond is in these early movies. There are minimal quips, certainly of the comedic kind. You know, it's summed up for me in this one great scene where a hitman tries to assassinate Bond while he sleeps. But 007 is waiting for him. He waits for him to unload his six bullets into the bed before making his presence known. You've had your six. And then Bond shoots him, not once. Not twice, but three times, including a bullet in the back. This is a no-nonsense version of the character that would become diluted as the series went on. There's not any massive set pieces on display here, with minimal action scenes that are tense and exciting and that serve the plot. Bond is portrayed here as a spy who relies on his wits and not gadgets from Q Branch. I do love that the series became larger than life as it went on, but sometimes it's really nice to go back to the basics of what makes Bond such a great character. And that's without even mentioning that Ursula Andres entrance. 8 out of 10. So then we move on to the second Bond movie, which is From Russia With Love. Take a look. You should remember him. This man kills for pleasure. 
Nice face. This is my personal favourite of the Connery Bond movies, which may surprise a lot of people as I think most people's favourite Connery movie is number three. But we'll get to that. This, this is the movie that established many of the 007 troops that would go through the entire series for decades to come. The introduction of Q, the villainous henchman, Spectre, the first in- introduction of Blofeld, although we do never see him, just hear his instructions. The beautiful locations, the glamorous girls, the theme song. From Russia With Love has two main plots driving the action. There is a henchman being trained to assassinate Bond. Clearly his reputation precedes him. He is trained at a large facility that hints at the true size and resources of Spectre. There is the encryption device that serves as the MacGuffin, as Spectre try to steal the device and humiliate the British in the process. There's so much to enjoy here. You can see the influence that Alfred Hitchcock, for example, had on the Bond series at this point. It echoes north by northwest, especially with the helicopter scene very reminiscent of the famous crop duster sequence. The icy cool blonde, the latter half of the movie being set predominantly on a train. The close quarters fight between Bond and Red Grant, Spectre's henchman, is possibly the best hand-to-hand fight in Bond movie history. It is not played for laughs or excess, it's not over the top, it's not dramatically put together, it's not dramatically scored, it's simply two men trying to survive, using whatever is close by and their wits. It won't surprise you who wins, but he sure is made to work for it. I personally think this is the perfect storm of the Connery era Bond movies. It oozes class, suspense, realistic action, intelligence, humour and glamour, Everything you could want from a trip into the world of 007. Very, very strong. 9 out of 10. Which moves us on to number 3 in the Bond movies, which is Goldfinger from 1964. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. The Bond movie that is most synonymous with the Connery era, for better or worse. If From Russia With Love started to establish the Bond movie tropes, then Goldfinger took them and ran with it very fast. It's all here. The first pre-credit sequence where Bond is finishing off a previous mission. Doctor No interestingly didn't have a pre-credit sequence, and From Russia With Love only had a lookalike for 007 being killed by Spectre. This was the, the first time you saw Bond finishing off one mission before going on to another. And this mission ends with a well-timed pun. Shocking. It has a larger-than-life villain in Auric Goldfinger, who enjoys torturing Bond rather than outright killing him, especially through the use of lasers. It has a Bond girl with a ridiculous name. I still can't believe they got away with Pussy Galore. There's that over-the-top but amazing theme tune by Shirley Bassey. The single greatest car in movie history, the Aston Martin DB5, complete with all the usual refinements. All of which, of course, come in handy during 007's mission. Ejector seat, you're joking. And of course, a woman who dies because she's covered in gold paint. It's all tremendously entertaining and full of iconic scenes. Connery has probably never looked more comfortable in the role. And from here on in, the Bond movie franchise had a definitive direction. One that would serve it well for another 50 years and counting. 8 out of 10. Number 4 of the Bond movies, Thunderball. Uh Uh-huh. In the conference room, something pretty big. Every double O man in Europe's been rushed in. And the Home Secretary too. Somebody's probably lost a dog. The Bond movies at this point were on a mission of their own to make sure that they outdid the previous entry. And given that this one started out with Bond making his escape via jetpack, they certainly do that. It's not quite reaching the heights of science fiction, but it's not far off. 
By now, Spectre is fully established as the big bad of the Bond universe, and their latest scheme sees them trying to acquire nuclear warheads and then hold the world to ransom for 100 million. This takes Bond to the Bahamas and beyond. With Thunderball, another trope was added, the beautiful femme fatale. There were glamorous women on the side of evil in the first three, but none like this. The character of Fiona added a new level of menace to Bond, given his weakness for beautiful women. Thunderball is always referred to as the underwater one due to the extensive action scenes filmed at great depths. Some of these scenes do drag on a bit for me, but there's no doubting they look stunning, especially at a time where movies were not as advanced as they are now, and underwater photography was not as commonplace as it is now. Connery brings his usual mix of charm and menace to the role. I think he got the point. We also have another Bond trope introduced the villain with a distinguishing feature, in this case an eye patch. There's no doubting that this is a fun movie, but to this point, this was the weakest Bond movie for me. Though another Connery entry would take that title very soon. 7 out of 10. We move on now to Bond movie number 5, You Only Live Twice, 1967. James Bond, allow me to introduce myself. I am Ernst Stavro Blofeld. They told me you were assassinated in Hong Kong. Yes, this is my second life. You only live twice, Mr. Bond. A James Bond movie written by Roald Dahl. Take my money. This is the first movie in the series to take 007 to Asia. It features a volcanic lair, again a first for the series, has Little Nelly, and features a plot that takes some of the action to space. It's fair to say that to this point, this was the movie that could have been ripped straight from the pages of a comic book. Everything about You Only Live Twice is larger than life. It starts off in the most shocking way. James Bond is killed in action. Admittedly, he'd go out how he wanted, in the bed of a beautiful woman. However, it is all a ruse to keep his enemies off his scent. If they think he's dead, they'll stop looking for him. Spaceships are going missing as they navigate the Earth. There is simply no trace left of them, and the Americans blame the Russians, and vice versa. The world is on the point of nuclear war, so Bond is sent to investigate, as there has been some unusual activity in Japan. This marks the first proper entrance of Ernst Stavro Blofeld, Bond's nemesis. He is the head of Spectre and a menacing presence. He may not have the physicality of Bond, but he certainly has the brains to challenge him. For me, this is the first Bond movie that is aimed at the whole family. Bond is not quite the cold assassin of the previous movies here, and there is not a drop of blood to be seen, even in the huge climax. There are more double entendres here than ever before, and the whole thing could have stemmed from the imagination of a child. Giant volcano layer, indeed. But it's also the most fun Bond movie to this point, and it moves at a breakneck pace. It's a very different movie to From Russia With Love, but I think it pushes it all the way for the title of the best Connery-era Bond movie. 9 out of 10. This brings us on to On Her Majesty's Secret Service. 1969. It's alright. It's quite alright, really. She's having a rest. We'll be going on soon. There's no hurry, you see. We have all the time in the world. After five movies and all the press that came with it, you know, You Only Live Twice was the final straw for Sean Connery. As it was shot in Japan, his presence there was akin to the Beatles. Sean Connery decided to step away from 007. And while changing the actor is just par for the course these days, back in 1968, the producers had no idea how the audience would feel about a new man filling the shoes of Bond. So they embarked on a very unusual marketing scheme where they obscured the face of George Lazenby on all the posters. It was almost as if they were trying to dupe the audience into thinking Connery was still there. 
And it's a shame, as I think George Lazenby actually does a very credible job following in the footsteps of Connery. This is helped by the movie itself, which is one of the most important in the James Bond canon, and has a strong supporting cast and a Bond girl who is 007's match. Once again, Blofeld is the big bad here, and Bond is sent to the Swiss Alps to investigate his allergy treatment centre. Yes, really. Obviously, Bond suspects that this is merely a front for something bigger, and the way he meets Tracy, the daughter of a mob boss, who he actually falls in love with, and even goes so far as to marry her. But we know Bond cannot be tied down, and therefore tragedy must strike. There is some great action here, particularly on the slopes of the Swiss Alps, and I think Lazenby gives it everything. I do feel it is a little bit too long, you know, until Casino Royale comes along 30 years later. This was the longest Bond movie. And also Bond's character jumps about a bit. You know, are we supposed to believe that he deeply loves Tracy, yet he beds two women in the treatment centre on the same night? But I don't think Lazenby could have done any more and it's a shame that he didn't come back because how the movie ends is heartbreaking and it would have set up an amazing revenge story. 7 out of 10. And this brings us on to the last Bond movie of the week which coincidentally is the last Connery Bond movie which is Diamonds Are Forever, 1971. My God, you just killed James Bond. Is that who it was? Well, just goes to show, no one's indestructible. I think at this point the wheels were starting to come off for the Bond franchise a little bit. Diamonds Are Forever is one of the worst Bond movies for me, if not the worst. It is overly Americanized for a start. Everything we love about Bond is the fact that he is quintessentially British, you know, he does it for Queen and Country. Yet this movie takes him to Las Vegas and has him driving American muscle cars. Bond movies are famous for their large-scale action set pieces, yet here there aren't any. There is one good fight between Bond and a villain... I can't remember the name and that's part of this movie's problem. There's just no memorable characters. In a close quarters elevator. But that's about it. Even the finale is disappointing with Bond being reduced to swinging Blofeld's escape pod around from a crane. There is definitely a point on the filmmaker's part here to introduce more comedy to the world of Bond. But it just comes across as crass and childish. Bond pretending to be kissing a lady in an alleyway by putting his arms around himself. Blofeld dressing in drag for cheap laughs, Q cheating on the slot machines in Vegas with an electromagnetic ring. It's all just plain silly in a world away from the serious tones of From Russia With Love or even the big budget spectacle of You Only Live Twice. At least Connery is back, right? Wrong. He's clearly on set but equally clearly thinking about his next round of golf. Even his delivery of Bond, James Bond is awful. Connery's huge payout for this film means there was no money left for anything else. Though in Connery's defence, he only said he'd come back if they paid him $1 million and he duly donated his entire paycheck to charity. By the end of the movie, you have cheap-looking helicopter explosions, clearly animated, that would have been superbly detailed model shots in previous and in later movies. The worst part for me is that it wastes the power and complexity of the end of Under Majesty's Secret Service by basically tying up Bond's revenge mission for the murder of his wife in the opening credits scene. This movie had such potential giving the setup of the movie, but it just comes across as rushed and cheap. 3 out of 10. And this brings us to the end of the Connery Lazenby era of Bond. Next up, time for some Roger Moore excellence. And I'm very much looking forward to that. Until next time, guys. Mm-hmm.